0: City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre
1: This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer
2: Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Now in their 29th year, these seminars give you the opportunity to learn from the professionals as they share their experiences in working in the theatre. Today's seminar is on playwrights, directors, and choreographers. These are the artists who provide the creative heart of the theatre that provide the marvelous productions we see on the stage and allow us to show how the magic of theatre is created. Although we were holding this seminar not long after the tragedy, September 11th, we have asked our panelists not to dwell on those horrible events as we look to the future. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and I now would like to introduce our moderator for the seminar, founder of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center, George C. White. George.
0: Thank you, Isabel. I'd like to – I have the honor, actually, to uh, introduce the panel, um, whose collective credits are, as they say, too numerous to mention, but I will simply say what they do. On My far right is uh, choreographer Rob Ashford, and uh, next to him is uh, playwright Michael Frane, Mm -hmm. and uh, sitting next to me is uh, Lynn Meadow, who is uh, a director – directress. Direct <laughs> debt. Um, uh, immediately to my left, next to me, is Wayne Salento or Cilento, depending on how well you want to speak Italian, okay. mm-hmm. uh, and uh, who is a choreographer. And next to him is uh, playwright and lyricist Greg Kotis. And on my far left is Sean Matthias, who is a director. And I would like to. Um, start or get the puck on the ice, as they say, mm-hmm. with, a, with a question to Lynn Meadow, if uh, I may. Um, you're in the process of uh, building a new Manhattan Theatre Club. Um, do you have to do this uh, if you want to get a job as a director, build your own theatre? <laughs>
3: <coughs> you don't have to, but it helps. <laughs> um, and uh, we're actually adding to the Manhattan Theatre Club campus, because we already have two theatres, and this will be a third theatre on Broadway. But uh, back in the 70s, when I began at the Manhattan Theatre Club um, and began doing this thing of running a theatre, uh, it was so that I could have a career as a director. And uh, I think being a woman in the 70s and to be hired as a director was not what it is today. So it definitely did help. Um, it It surely is not necessary, and it's less necessary now than it was then.
0: What would you say to particularly to young women trying to get a job? How do you get a job doing that?
3: Uh, I, I think in the uh, within the last, I don't know, five to ten years in New York, there's been a lot more activity and a lot of smaller theatres and a, a lot of work going on, a kind of resurgence of people really being excited about being in the theatre and young people being interested in being in the theatre. And that means more work. The best way to direct is to direct. You know, the best way to write <laughs> is to write mm-hmm. and yeah. choreograph. But, but um, I, I think to b- try to get a position somewhere and do your work is the best thing someone can do. Also, um, I have had experience with wonderful assistants who have gone on to have terrific careers as directors, so that's also a very valid way of going about the business of starting. Sean,
0: uh-huh. yeah. would you say that also perhaps getting to know a playwright, now let the playwright sleep in it, would be, <laughs> or nurturing a playwright so that you become their director? Is that useful? I mean, it's a great way in.
1: I, I haven't really much had that privilege, because most of the, the writers I've worked with have been well-dead, so <laughs> I have, <from laughs> mo- most of my career has been made in, in sort of redefining what a, an older play is. But on the occasions I've worked with writers, it's been very thrilling. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of young directors have, have made their careers absolutely being married, as it were, to particular writers. Um, certainly, of course, in, in Great Britain, where we have the subsidized theatre, that's, that's uh, uh, where most writers, wa- uh, most writers and directors sort of uh, are nurtured. And uh, the relationship between a writer and director can only come to fruition when the writer is produced. Like you said, a, a director has to direct. It's all very well for a writer sitting at home writing, but a writer only learns to become a playwright by being produced in the theatre. And having a – Michael may disagree, but having a a good relationship with a director is very useful. Of course, sometimes that runs out of steam. It's like a marriage. You may may have done five or six things together, and then you need to part. It's the same as as the relationship between a director and a designer. I did, I think, seven or eight things with one particular designer. And after that period of time, we ha- have had a huge break, you know. I think that's normal. You, 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 the creative process is, is one that needs to be reinvented constantly, and one looks to other collaborators for one's impetus.
0: Mm-hmm. Wayne, you um, uh, being a choreographer, and Rob too, so both of you can – would you talk to us about what seems, at least from my v- viewpoint, th- one of the more arcane or difficult jobs, which is choreography. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you had, I believe, uh, started in Chorus Line. Right. Um, So that was, I mean, you you grew up into it. But uh, how does one start there, too? I mean, you just – apart from, obviously, being able – not having two left feet. You mean becoming a choreographer? Becoming a choreographer. (laughs) I don't think
4: every dancer could become a choreographer. No, exactly. What is the mindset? Well, uh, um, I think you get either you have the knowledge or the ability to do it, which I didn't really know if I had or not. And I wasn't interested, to tell you the truth. Uh, I wanted to go to Holly- Hollywood and be Gene Kelly or someone like that, which they weren't doing anymore. But <laughs> um, <laughs> and I got tricked into it. I mean, Chorus Line gave me a lot of recognition as being one of the best dancers on Broadway. And then I started uh, choreographing by doing a lot of national commercials. But it really? Was, it w- yeah. It was, uh, so I, I did that for like almost ten years before I even approached the stage. I wasn't interested really. I I really wanted to just dance. Uh, So I got to know the camera really well. And then I slowly – my first Broadway show was Baby. And um, that was a difficult process, because it's making natural people dance, you know, (laughs) like real people. And it's not – there wasn't an ensemble of dancers. It was a group of real people in a doctor's office, talking about having a child and Singing and dancing, so. Um, <laughs> but I think I was able to do that because of the commercials, <coughs> because of making those real people move and sing and dance about soda or something mm-hmm. ridiculous mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then you just start. It's like Lynn said. Then you start um, learning your craft, mm-hmm. and you you just keep you just keep going. But I also flip flopped. I performed. I choreographed. I performed. I choreographed until I actually really enjoyed taking on that process, which is not an easy process, Rob.
5: For me, I started, obviously, as a dancer in the chorus, uh, and then as a dance captain. And that was a great learning forum, I realized, to see how a show was put together and mm-hmm. how it worked. So that helped a lot. And then from being a dance captain – I think I was always a dance captain, almost in every show that I did here in New York – uh, because you have a knack for it. You have an eye to be able to see, um, mis- well, half of it's being able to see the problems, and the other half is being able to give the notes and, and make the corrections without offending people. A therapist. It's a therapist. It is. <laughs> you, you <laughs> yeah. It, there's no doubt about it, and that has been invaluable right. learning when you're dealing with actors, and because there's egos involved all the time. And if you've had 15 years in the trenches of the dressing rooms of Broadway, going to from stars like Julie Andrews and Cheetah Rivera to, you know, the fifth chorus girl on the left saying, you know, you you really got to be on number two mm-hmm. for that. You really – you know, so that's a great learning thing. And then from there, I started assisting choreographers, mm-hmm. and that's another great way to learn that. In, th- in that capacity, you learn the, the backstage stuff. You learn how to work with a dance arranger. You learn how to sit in on a production meeting. How do you uh, – stop a second. Well, how do you work with a dance arranger, and what does a dance arranger do? Well, the dance arranger really b- makes the music for uh, – anytime, say, a number in a show opens up and there's just a dance with no vocals and, and just dance for dance sake, the dance arranger has written that music, usually off of a, r- uh, a melody line or some some line from the song that the composer's written, but then the dance <laughs> arranger takes that and, and plays with that. and. Uh, uh, under the, it's a great – it's a partnership between the choreographer and the dance arranger to really say what, you know, what the number should be. You, you can do anything. You have a, a melody line of a song, you know, let's make it a can-can. What would it be like if it was, uh, um, you know, if it sounded, uh, you know, Spanish? What, yeah. would it, what would it be like if it sounded like a honky-tonk? Wh- whatever you can do, and that sometimes helps fuel you creatively to – But it's also very dangerous.
4: Mm-hmm. to To go to those extremes, you know, with with the dance ranger, I, I mean, when I did Tommy, the hard part about Tommy was, and the brilliant part about Janine Tessoris was, um, you know, creating extra music or expanding on the music that was true to Pete Townsend's music. You know, instead mm-hmm. of going on a rampage and just saying, OK, let's do a Charleston here, mm-hmm. which <laughs> no. I would have been destroyed with. But so you have to stay true and pure to the score, and also keep telling the story about what's going on. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone really knows what choreographers do. I mean, I think it's a very intricate, hard process to carry a through-line and, uh, and keep telling the story. I and mean, directors, mm-hmm. s- <laughs> you know, yeah. And really, and bonding with the director, you know, becoming one, which is the best collaboration.
2: We are now Important. seeing choreographer-director.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, how does that happen?
4: Well, I think you get to a certain point where you have your own vision, and it's almost easier to, um, to, to do what you see in your head directri- directorially and choreographically. So the flow um, is better. I think when there's a, a collaboration between a director and a choreographer, I think that when it works, it's, it's brilliant, because then you're, you're really taking two creative elements and making it one, and if and if you could manage that, then it's getting a little bit that's the best of everything. That's only recently
2: that we had that category.
3: But Jerome Robbins was a yeah, director-choreographer.
2: Right. right. Right, but he wasn't Billed as such. He was, he was a choreographer, he was a director. I think mm-hmm. Today, we find choreographer-director, and you're Billy. Mm-hmm. I think well, you what was he built on for Fiddler on the Roof?
3: He wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Does that
2: eliminate yeah. the director?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, like Michael Bennett became—he was a choreographer and then yeah. he became uh, the Bob director Fosse. and the yeah. choreographer. The Bob, Bob Fosse. Fosse, you know, the same thing. So I think if if you have the an knack and if you're you're fortunate enough, you can cross over and 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 do that.
5: I also think it depends on the show. Right. right. Certain shows need a style every minute of the show. Right. And certain shows don't really have book scenes or, right. or any real dr- dramatic scenes right. that aren't uh, enhanced by movement. So those kind of shows, like the shows that Fossey did, Chicago Pippin, these kind right. of shows, y- you need to be in charge of every every movement, because there aren't long book scenes right. that right. a director – can, can take charge of right. I think If
3: Michael Frayn wrote a musical, then I, I would hope that Sean or I could direct it right. and then you could correct it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But you have right, to keep yeah.
0: moving moving the, the 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 piece along, which right. is also right. another right. difficult thing. And I was thinking whether like a pro quarterback you have to see pass patterns. Don't you see patterns? Uh, yeah, absolutely. A, you know, yeah, that absolutely. that are very complex. And maybe. also moving the set along and making transitions
4: stay alive mm-hmm. and there's, you know, blackouts are not very popular these days. People want to see the whole mechanism of everything. So it's kind of keeping the motion and, and the, the play moving.
5: I think it, I'm sorry, go
3: ahead. I was just going to say, I think what uh, people tend to lose sight of, though, is th- this idea basically of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the job. Absolutely. our jobs mm-hmm. uh, as directors and, and choreographers is to tell the story that the writer has created. Mm-hmm. And, that's, a- and there's, there's a lot of decoration involved, but finally, we have to keep our eye on the big picture and, right. and what story is being told, and when mm-hmm. we lose track of that, mm-hmm. actually, I, I think our, our craft and, and the decoration of our craft suffers. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that and the craft, I'll start with, uh, with Greg here. Tell us about your relationship to directors and choreographers, <coughs> and actually how you found them, because where you started from
6: and, you know. Right. Uh, well, I come from off-off Broadway, uh, and I spent a lot of time in Chicago in, in what's called the off-off loop scene there. Um, and my recent experience uh, with Urinetown was my first commercial experience. So that was the first time that I worked with a commercial director and choreographer. Um, previous to that, you know, uh, uh, in poor theatre, you just you do everything yourself. <laughs> so, you know, th- the idea of, of, of uh, division of labor is, is alien. You it's, it's, it's a confusing idea, because mm-hmm. anyway, you do, you do everything yourself in that world. But in this world, it was, it was, really, uh, it was really fantastic, because just, for example, in, in some of the musical scenes and working with our choreographer, uh, John Carafa, um, in some mm-hmm. of the numbers, he was able to sort of show us where um, the scene, the musical scene and, and the number could really take off, and music didn't exist there. Mm-hmm. So he worked very closely with the composer, uh, Mark Holman, um, to make scenes uh, I- and numbers which were fine before uh, really sort of ex- uh, explosive. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was wonderful. And with the director as well, he was also someone who um, sort of – he taught us about the piece. You know, you, you lay out this, this blueprint of the, of the script um, and they're the people who come in and say, here's where it goes, here's the arc of it. Um, and they were very uh, active in um, uh, telling us how to make it better. No, you were say- they were saying that to you rather than you saying it to them. But sort of interesting. That, uh, that seems what you're saying. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, when we when we first started working on it, we of course thought it was absolutely perfect and nothing. You know, could imagine changing anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that we would be taken aside and say, and you know, there's there's one number in the second act which is now this is a very strong uh, number called "Snuff That Girl." Um, where, uh, in the story of the poor, sort of, they get worked up into a bloody froth. Um, and that did, number didn't exist, and, and <laughs> Rando uh, said that, look, you need you have this really strong number uh, in the second position. If you have something strong before it, it's going to make mm-hmm. the whole thing stronger. And we at first thought, oh, no, it'll, it'll, it'll exhaust the act. Mm-hmm. Um, no one, you know, mm-hmm. no one will want to pay attention after these two numbers. Uh, but he was, he was right. He understood that. Um, You know, you add more fuel to the fire, and it just makes the whole thing burn brighter. Mm -hmm. So that was an education to me, um, you know, learning from someone who was seeing the picture much beyond what we imagine in our heads. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was – it was an education in trust, and also uh, paying attention to what people people are saying.
4: But I think that's what's good about collaborating, because everyone pushes everyone's buttons, you Mm -hmm. know, and pushes you to an extreme where it, it gets a little bit better. A director would push me to, to do something maybe I didn't see. So so I, I do think it, it works. When it works, it really works well, you know. If it is
5: a good partnership, I right. think it's like a couple that can finish each other's sentences. It's that kind of thing. Right. Where you could just pick up right where right. the director left off, and they could do the same with you, and also that there's no ego involved there. Right. That's another, right. you know, uh, unknown, like does right. the director welcome that or not? And like, you know, so it's all – it's a very tentative uh, relationship at first. That's why if you get with a director that you can work well with, or a choreographer, I think that you go back and go back and go back, because it's, it's tough to get that uh, shorthand. But I know. also
4: think what you said is true also. I think you get to a place where um, – like, I felt – I've had a lot of assistance, and I feel there's a certain point in your relationship where you have to move on to a different energy you know, you, you need different things that uh, will come into your life to get you over that hump. Otherwise, you become very um, safe.
1: And some mean? people are, b- are better at collaborating than others. I mean, some uh, directors would feel that they really do carry the whole mm-hmm. picture in their head, and they've got a very strong sense of it from the outset. I'm absolutely not like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, people may think that I'm like that when they see my finished result, because maybe it seems so presented. But actually, I'm not like that. I love working with everyone, and I think it depends how you communicate. I think I do happen to be a good listener, so therefore, mm-hmm. I would listen to the people I'm working with and what their ideas are. Because how, in my point of view, how could – the thing could only be – the end product could only be better, having everyone's talent and input. Right. But some directors aren't like that, and it doesn't mm-hmm. mean to say that they are lesser. They just uh, can hold mm-hmm. the thing more strongly, more particularly in their head. And they are more autocratic, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a style thing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Michael, you – yeah,
2: I'm sorry, go ahead. We let Michael sit here so quietly, I know. Well, absorbing
0: I've – He's writing it all <laughs> <laughs> down,
2: no, and waiting. I really <laughs> – Yeah, <laughs> 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 he's
0: waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's playing clean <thing> up. He's <laughs> playing clean up. No, Michael, I was uh, – uh, I wasn't ignoring you. I was waiting, uh, because uh, I have a lot of things to ask you about. Uh, also, um, because you have uh, – the variety of your work uh, is stunning, as well. Uh, uh, anyone can that can go from noises off. Uh, uh, which is marvelous pure farce, uh, to Copenhagen, which is an incredible mind trip, um, and then also write a novel like um, Headlong, which means that. Uh, I'm amazed at your mental furniture. <laughs> <laughs> you have a huge <laughs> attic up there yeah. of all kinds of uh, things uh, that you draw on. Uh, wh-
7: <coughs> where did you come from? I mean, where, how did all this get going? In? <laughs> well, it's uh, you not know mental furniture. It's more like a, a lumber warehouse. up there. <laughs> <laughs> I agree very strongly about the, uh, with Sean about the importance of the relationship between the writer and the director. A uh, writer depends absolutely on the director he works with. And in the case of a new play, the relationship begins long before you ever get near the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. Um, A good director works with a a writer and persuades the writer, first of all, we get the play right. Um, I've worked mostly with Michael Blakemore. And Michael Blakemore is terrific at actually persuading you, uh, against your will, (laughs) to read (laughs) the thing. We always (laughs) read a play through together, for a start. And he makes me read it to him. I have no acting ability of any sort whatsoever. I can't even hit the right stress in my own lines. (laughs) So it's a very painful and embarrassing (laughs) procedure. (laughs) (laughs) But it means that we hear the whole thing together. And he stops me at every line and says, boy, it's tedious, irritating questions like, but why does she say that? And I say, well, it's obvious why she says it. It's obvious why she says it. And she says, well, explain. And I say, well, all right, I'll take it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I have to say it's a very unfair relationship, because if a director works on a new play, nobody who sees the play knows what the writer's done, mm-hmm. um, and what the director's done. Um, so the writer usually gets the credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael Blakemore, who is one of the best directors of new plays in Britain, and I think in New York as well, Um, has not in Britain had all the credit he should have because people don't know the contribution is made. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a career as a director, I would recommend any uh, aspirant to stick with the classics because if you do a production of uh, Hamlet and everyone's on roller skates, they know that's the director's decision. <laughs> 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 they like it, they don't like it, but they, they put it down to the director gets the credit for it. They know that Shakespeare didn't say um, everyone is on work.
1: Which is why I keep away from all those new
3: writers. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with me? But there's something so thrilling about um, being in that process with a writer and helping to create, and and something very infuriating, and it's wonderful that you pointed out about not getting credit for lines that you've written, never mind! Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, never mind business that's created. Uh, On the other hand, it's just so thrilling to be at that uh, birthing process, and uh, the image I always feel is that you're in the jungle, and there's no – path that's there. You have to just hack your way <laughs> through the jungle and create a path. And, and there's something so great about that. Then others can go on the path that you, perhaps you found. But,
7: but it really is a, a radical process, So it can be a really radical process. Uh, Michael Batemore did the original production of Noises Off, and he really made me work on that play. really made me rewrite. My original idea, it's about a farce which, you see, rehearsal of and then you see it backstage and then you see it the right way again. Noises off. Um, but in Act two, where you see it backstage, my original idea, because it seemed very neat and logical and tidy, was that our curtain should go up at the same moment as the curtain should go up upstage on the Terrible fast, nothing on, the actors are playing. So the two curtains should rise simultaneously, and the two acts, our act, should start when their act starts, which is a very neat and deft idea. Um, Michael Blakemore said, no one is going to have the faintest idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> they simply won't be able to understand. What's go- are we backstage in the theatre? Who are these people? What are they doing? <laughs> he said, before their curtain goes up, we've got to get all the actors on stage, we've got to explain exactly where they've got to in the tour, like, what their relations are to each other, who's in love with whom, who's uh, fallen out with whom, and we've got to introduce all the props. So we know, but b- we're going to see when we get to the the summit bit. Um, and I resisted that for a long time. I had this such a neat idea. The two <laughs> curtains got together,
2: <me> <laughs>
7: <laughs> but uh, in the end, I had to concede he was right. And um, I've rewritten that scene a great deal and got more and more of the props on display. And now we're uh, revi- reviving it, uh, Michael Blake he did uh, originally five casts in London, uh, two in New York, one in Australia, and he really did not wish to have anything more to do with that play. <laughs> 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 um, and then the problem was to find another director and to forge a, a new relationship with a new director. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a long and agonizing process. And I the, yes.
0: How did you do that?
7: Well, and who <laughs> did you find and what was <laughs> yeah, the process? We had a long, long list of directors, and we thought about it, and argued about it. And um, I got sent to see a show called, in England, called Spend, 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 uh, a British musical, a fairly rare breed. <laughs> um, and it was directed by a man called Jeremy Sands. Well, I knew Jeremy Sands because he had begun as a musician and he had written the music for a play, a, a collection of Chekhov short plays I did called The Sneeze. Years before, then he'd become a translator, become a very distinguished translator from German, from French, from Italian, from almost any language you can think of, and he'd gone into directing. Well, as soon as I saw span, 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 I thought this man can organize something very complicated on the stage and at the same time retain a sense of, of human feeling. Um, And he has been, it turned out, as tough uh, a taskmaster as Michael Blakemore was. (laughs) (laughs) When we did the show again, I've seen it about a million times, and I knew there were uh, various things I wanted to try and improve. Um, And I told told Jeremy that, uh, rather bravely saying, I think I'd like to do a little rewriting on this. I didn't realize how much rewriting he was going to make me do. <laughs> 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 and we had another long process, like the original process, with Michael Blakemore, mm-hmm. where we went through it line by line, and he said, well, why did she do that, and all the rest of it? <laughs> agonizing <laughs> process. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, we got it a bit better as a result.
0: Good. Well, that's one. Now, uh, it's now we have live playwrights, um, and uh, uh, I want to – I'd like to ask Sean, since you were talking about dead playwrights. And you're in the middle of doing Strindberg. Um, you are given a, 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 a play with a long history that included uh, Laurence Olivier and all that. And now you have uh, two giants, still young giants, albeit I mean, in, in one sense, uh, uh, actors uh, who uh, uh, really um, bring to the stage their own personas. A giant. How do you deal with that as a director? Here are major players in this. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, um, well, first of all, the, the first giant, who is a, a much greater and harder giant to grapple with than either Ian McKellen or Helen Mirren, who are the two giants you're referring to, is is Strindberg. the giant of August Strindberg himself. Mm. Uh, because the play is just utterly frightening to mm. work on, really. I mean, I turned it down for five years. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jerry Schoenfeld of the Schubert Organization has been asking me to do this play for five or six years. I've said no so many times. And then. Finally, I, I felt, or I had the courage, or maybe I was a little older. Maybe I, I felt that I could tackle such a dark relationship. But I, I think that the key to it was finding the person who did the translation. And that's where my relationships with writers have been, uh, um, you know, grown in been being creative in the theatre, is um, working with somebody who would uh, adapt, as Michael has done, the classics. And actually, it's an, uh, it's an, uh, it's an amazing task to do. because. Uh, Hitherto, it's been largely done by academics, but in the last twenty years or even less, it's become far more standard for playwrights to do the adaptations. And what a difference it makes, because when a playwright uh, does the adaptation – well, for a start, if you can get a playwright who speaks the original language, that's a huge bonus. But if not, what'll happen is you commission a literal translation of the work. So we had the Swedish play translated into English for our purposes. But a playwright, then, will take the literal translation and turn it in such a way that the actors can really speak it, so it doesn't sound like a translation or an historic piece. It doesn't sound fusty. It doesn't sound one removed. And I think that's the the fashion for doing the the classics now from another language. And in our case, of course, we have Richard Greenberg, because this was an American production and I wanted it to be as Mer- American as possible. I, at the end of the day, there are the two stars of the th- – of, out of the three stars, two of them are, Amer- are English and one is American. But that is a coincidence, because uh, I just started doing the play. Um, in terms of working with uh, those stars, I mean, it's it's like you said, I guess, about Cheetah Rivera and Julie Andrews. I mean, actually, somebody in the chorus can have just as big an ego as Cheetah Rivera. I mean, ego is something that's – it doesn't just necessarily go with talent. Ego is something that um, <laughs> we all grapple with in our daily lives. <coughs> <coughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, uh, y- you know, you, y- you work from wh- whatever tools you, you can work from. And when you're working with uh, McKellen and Mirren and David Strathairn as the third actor in the, the play, you're working with such talented actors. That's, uh, that's all that, that, that really matters. I think what was difficult about this was the negoci- negotiation because of the the nature of the play. It's about a feuding, very dark, very destructive marriage, um, and uh, a la, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's got that sort of savage tension in the play. And I think uh, to negotiate the, um, the relationship between the characters Edgar and Alice, and to marry that negotiation between McKellen and Mirren, it was tough. It was it's psychologically tough. But a director has always been a therapist to some degree. I mean, the, the, director, the director has to do what Michael uh, talked about, uh, of, of sitting down with a writer. He then has to go away and do that with a designer, and then potentially with a choreographer, and then with all the actors, let alone dealing with the <laughs> producers and having that, a, a really good relationship with the producers. Because the worst thing that can happen in a production is that you have, a, you have two camps, the producers and the artists. That's the most fatal thing. We're all working towards the same end. So the director's got to be the person who weaves through all of that. Um, I'm just very relieved the show's open and has been, you know, well-received. But uh, it, wa- it was it was, tough, not because their egos are tough, but because the parts are tough, and, and the, the writing is tough. The writing is savage and extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And bleak. I mean, T- Strindberg is w- unbelievably ahead of his time. You can't begin to imagine how this man wrote that play a hundred years ago. <coughs> I would never stick my hand up and say it's the most perfectly made play. It's not. Put it next to Ibsen's great crafting. It's not. But in terms of its themes and in terms of its ideas and in terms of what he was saying about man's inhumanity and the theater, it's unbelievably modern and prescient.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, the reason I asked that, I mean, there's a <laughs> wonderful story about uh, Tony Richardson and uh, being, as a young director, being uh, asked to direct. Uh, Uh, Dame Edith Evans, in uh, uh, the thousandth time she was doing Importance of Being Earnest, he walked in about five minutes late and she was directing everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, uh, excuse me, uh, Dame Edith, I'm I'm, uh, Tony Richardson, I'd like to – I'm your director. And she said, oh, how sweet. We'll sit over there. We'll be with you in a moment. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) <laughs> that was it. That that's what I you – know, but that's a powerhouse, <laughs> and, that's <laughs> a, uh, and that's what I, but, but, I, but to some I, but degree, I, the
1: theatre was more like that then. Those, those – I mean, you know, everybody wore suits. People were called Mr. and Miss. You know, th- you, you weren't – you didn't use first-name terms. The formality and the power of the star – of course, the power of the star is huge today – but the power of the star was different then. And directors were more enablers. Now, we've been through a period of Directors Theatre, where, you know, the Hamlet on roller skates created that Directors mm-hmm. Theatre. We have mm-hmm. The RSC has a lot to answer for. And, mm-hmm. and of course, in American theatre, like mm-hmm. the, the director-choreographer, the musical theatre, which has created these star directors, the ones you were talking about earlier. Um, so, so a director does have a different status now to thirty years ago. Although Tony Richardson, of course, himself was a great star director, and I'm sure he handled Dame Edith just fine and damned. Mm-hmm. Well, I think ultimately, <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, Greg,
0: tell us. Um, back up a little bit. Um, how did you get into this business? I mean, I know you got into uh, Off-Off-Broadway and in Chicago, but tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from, because you <coughs> suddenly exploded on the New York scene, right. in one sense. And how did that happen? How did you
6: get here? Uh, well, I, um, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a large theatre community, which is largely invisible to mainstream <laughs> audiences. Um, in New York and off off Broadway, but also around the country in, in cities like Chicago and San Francisco and Houston, um, and basically they're, they're bands of friends who come together and they just they they um, they're just very passionate about creating theater, um, and for whatever reason they don't find their way to the commercial world, um, either because uh, they they love the ensemble which they've they've joined. Like in <coughs> Chicago, this tradition is is it it the, it's expressed in. Companies like Steppenwolf and Second City, um, and a company called uh, Organic Theatre, um, which was around for a while. So it, it, it's very much about ensembles and groups of friends who just, they want to goof off, don't want to get a job or, or <laughs> sell really bad jobs, but their passion in their and their, their heart is in creating these small shows in theatres, which probably have anywhere from forty to sixty seats. Um, and so that's where I spend most of my time. Um, and writing plays, and it was a wonderful place to do that, because um, Now, where was that? Well, I started in Chicago. Um, With a specific company? uh, Yeah, I worked with the Cardiff Giant Theatre Company, and then later with a company called The Neo-Futurists, that do a show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, um, which is their uh, best-known show. Um, but that sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a program of thirty plays in sixty minutes, which are performed in a random order determined by the audience. So it's very, it's very it's very chaotic. And there's there's this mm-hmm. tradition which um, I joined uh, in the late '80s, which was um, wasn't interested in commercial theater. W- w- wanted something that was very, uh, to our mind, very sort of rough and raw um, and immediate. Um, where the division between the audience and the actors was almost non-existent, and that budgets were in the hundreds of dollars, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and that was, you know, it was sort of a, uh, it's – thinking about it now, and, and seeing the, the commercial world as it is, it seems like madness that anyone would ever want to do that. Because, <laughs> you know, we had our own visions of like, oh, well, see, we're going to be like Second City or whatever. Um, but really, that's it's a very, very rare, rare experience. But what, what, um, what was great about it, it was um, a very raw uh, uh, writing experience where you wrote for your friends and your friends told you immediately uh, what they thought of it. Um, there were no previews. Um, and really, the shows were not written until sort of somewhere in the run, <laughs> was when, th- when they were finally done. Um, and so for the most part, you got slammed, the press hated you. Um, but it was, it was all about the passion of doing it. And uh, this this play, *You're in Town*, was uh, it, it, it uh, premiered to publi- to the audience um, as part of the New York International Fringe Festival, and it just it just kind of kept on moving along. And our expectation was that we wrote this thing, and um, a few of our friends will see it, and it will have been done. We can plant our flag, and that was it, and shake hands and walk away from it. Um, but it just it had a uh, it had a it had a lot of luck. Um, and so that's, that's where uh, I come from, where the show comes from. What's your education? Uh, I got a, a Bachelors of Political Science from the University of Chicago, which also has um, a, a tradition of uh, uh, um, intellectuals, I guess, who um, don't really th- – they don't have anything useful to offer the <laughs> <laughs> world. <laughs> And they, they're very aware of this. <laughs> um, and the, the best they can hope for is, is, you know, I mean, I started doing theatre uh, in – I mean, I, d- I did university theatre, but when I started getting serious about it, I was doing it in a bar on the south side of Chicago called Jimmy's Woodlawn Tap. Um, and on 55th Street, this is where uh, the Compass Players came from, in Second City. Um, and these were, our, these were our heroes, people who had no training, uh, had questionable ability. Um, uh, But they didn't want to get a job, we didn't want to get a job either. So um, (laughs) we thought, maybe if we just work in this bar for a while, uh, you know, Lynn Meadow will come and say, oh, (laughs) I've got to come (laughs) and (laughs) you won't have to work anymore, it'll be great. (laughs)
4: Sometimes it's safer there, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> oh, in the bar? It's a, yeah. It's yeah. a lot more creative and a lot safer, until you get into that commercial world, and that's when all the walls start, like, closing in on <laughs> you, you, know? But
3: we're talking about passion, aren't we? Right. And just trying to keep it. Alive, and it's you know unfortunately when the more money is involved, a, a lot of times as Sean was saying, there can be a friction between the producers and the artistic team. When there's not that money, there's not necessarily that friction. And right. I mean, it, not necessary. But so we're just we're trying to keep the, this incubator incubator feeling in order to create, aren't we? Cool. To mm-hmm. the feeling, uh, you know, as arduous as it is to go through the script wi- with Michael Blakemore is you're only in touch with your passion mm-hmm. you're not thinking about anything else other than trying to make it happen i think that's the, the scary part when we are all these interferences in our work and when it stops being about the work and it becomes about people's egos and you lose sight of really mm-hmm. what it's about
0: well that that brings that, that brings up the thing that, that's a, that we, we were we bringing to yeah we were we were talking a little bit earlier before the show uh, and I don't want to – it's hard to bring them up without bashing them, but but the relation to the critics. We were talking about what that does, and when you get a bad review, then what happened. And I think we were all a right. little bit M- – I uh, might mention that again, what mm-hmm. we were talking about right. when you had uh, a bad review and what right. that – we found it freeing.
3: Right. I, I was uh, mentioning to George that I um, did a musical actually with a wonderful choreographer named Jerry Mitchell. and. Um, and we were like, we had that relationship of um, one finishing the other sentences, and um, it was a terrific experience of, of uh, a piece based on the Captain's Courageous. And um, we just loved it. There were 16 guys, and me, and Jerry, and it was heaven. We just, we. we loved the piece, and and we loved creating it, and the audiences came every night and they loved it and they wept, and the press came in. And to a person, they just called it the worst thing they had ever (laughs) seen in their lives! They just hated it! I mean, really vilified it. And um, I I was saying to George, for for me, as a director, it was actually a very liberating experience.
4: (laughs) You were a free woman. (laughs) I was free! It didn't matter
3: (laughs) anymore! and, And I understood um, that we do what it is that we do, and, um, and I understood that there is a ritual in the theatre. It's like communion. You, you, this thing happens, and, and communion is offered. And there are some people who decide to come forward and take communion. Other people sit back and they don't want to, and audience, audience members who don't want to participate. Mm-hmm. But the, pe- the fact that people are sitting back does not invalidate the ritual of communion. So I-, I could own my act of communion and say, "This is every night, we're having a great time doing this. And I-, I think what was interesting was, as a director, really not to feel that I had to be safe anymore. And I went from doing that to doing a new play with Charles Bush called The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, that was kind of outra- an outrageous piece. Uh, but I didn't care anymore. It just didn't make any difference. I was going to do really follow my passion and do what I felt like doing. So. I think it can be a gift to um, to be free of what other people Mm. think. But
2: (laughs) (laughs) how did you and the cast (coughs) react to this? What happened with them when the review came out? Um, what are the cast?
3: Well, doing? increasingly, I, I find that actors don't like to read reviews while they're mm-hmm. performing. They find that if they're very good, that uh, it, it doesn't make them feel as good as they want to feel, and if they're very bad, it hurts their feelings. So they they prefer to just kind of wait. I mm-hmm. think a lot of playwrights too. It's not that they don't necessarily care at some point to read them, but as you're performing every night, I, you know, I, I think they don't want to have voices in their head commenting on what it is they're doing. So we went about our business. The audiences continued to love the show, so we were – we had a subscription audience at the Manhattan Theatre Club, so that kind of protected us, and uh, we did what we needed to do. I do think it's
7: very tough for uh, actors getting reviews, because they do have to go back and do the show after the reviews have come out, and even if they don't read their reviews, they have a feeling uh, of what yes. the tone mm-hmm. of the reviews yes. is, yes. because people are coming <laughs> up to them and saying, I wouldn't read the review in the Times. <laughs> <laughs> <it was. laughs> uh, say is, uh, what a, what a <laughs> so-and-so he is, isn't he? And you know you've, you've got a bad review. Uh, I mean, it's bad enough for the, uh, for the writer and the director is very miserable getting bad reviews, but at least you don't have to face the audience again. Actually turning up and facing the audience if someone has publicly rubbished you and said how well, awful you are, very, very yeah. painful, I think.
3: Painful, but I think sometimes I've seen actors tremendously insulated if they are in touch enough with why they're doing yeah. it and, um, and what the story is that they're trying to yeah. tell. I've seen companies actually get stronger as a result of getting reviews that aren't so good. And they just say, OK, well, we're, you know, we believe in this and we're <laughs> – I, I don't mean to say that it doesn't hurt mm. and it's not painful, but um, sometimes you see companies really strong mm. I've seen a number you can of also <laughs> see the <laughs> critics
1: really out of step with the public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, for the thing that I got my very worst reviews for, I received my most number of fan letters. So mm-hmm. you know, how do you mm-hmm. work that out? I mean, it does uh, – it sort of makes you into a case when you get very bad reviews, of course, because mm-hmm. most people run away, but the few people who believe in you, they come out even stronger for you. But you get one. the
7: case where you get bad reviews mm-hmm. and the public doesn't like yes. it as well. Yes, <laughs> I <laughs> 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 And if
2: we call
1: that now, now flop, don't we? That's <laughs> a tip, But, uh, but
7: yeah.
3: anyone brilliant is capable <coughs> and should be capable of getting really bad reviews, yeah. I think.
0: Because mm. that's about why? N- why it's I'm about, about taking today.
3: risks. Sure. It's about doing the thing that we didn't think we could do. And when we succeed at it, everyone says, oh, well, great. <coughs> you're in town. We knew. But you know, I, yeah. I'm sure when you were beginning it's the endeavor, like, you're in town. You're going to do musical. You're in town, t- <laughs> <laughs> you know. And here, so now <laughs> it becomes, oh, sure, but that's a high. It's a
2: high wire act. Right. Then, yeah. is review ever helpful?
7: Yes, I, uh, bad reviews can be helpful if you get a chance to have another go at it. I uh, um, always read reviews uh, so as to know the uh, what's the basis of the decisions that producers and, uh, and the public are making. Um, and when I've had a chance to have another go at writing something that's got bad reviews, I've tried to force myself to read the bad reviews and try and understand what went wrong. It's often not what the critic thinks has gone wrong. You get reviewed, you get a bad review for something, um, and you realize when you think about it, um, he's misunderstood something or he's taken off on the wrong point and you think you, if you could just get it clearer, if you just make clearer what you had in mind, you can, you can get it a bit better. It doesn't often happen, because if you get really bad reviews, you don't normally get a chance to do the thing again, but occasionally, you do.
3: Do another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, As Alan mm-hmm. said, just do another one very quickly and make them see yes. it. <laughs> I, I think there's a difference, though, between the subsidized theatre and the commercial theatre in this regard, though, where uh, some of our subsidized theatres, like the Manhattan Theatre Club, where an audience is going to come for a ten-week period, regardless of the mm-hmm. reviews, it's a different story from a commercial. A Broadway run where the show won't run if the uh, right, the reviews that's aren't that's positive. So it really, yeah, it's a different that. mindset. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, the uh, one one thing, I was going to uh, say when you when you have also when you have a hit uh, like Aida, right. um, and you you go on to another production of it. You're talking about doing it in Amsterdam, right, um, and. You go over the uh, from the original. We don't have to do the ballet score by Verdi. No. Right, so, right. Um, what do you what do you do? Do you try when you do to recreate that, or when you're doing a revival, you say, Ah, I think I can do something different here, or, or do you do you take it to a different place? Well, uh, for me, I'm,
4: i I never stop. I mean, I'm never satisfied with what mm-hmm. I do, and it's obvious. Me as a choreographer, I push buttons, um, and I do take risks, and I um, and I don't play it safe and when I start playing it safe, that's when I'm going to go garden somewhere and just be a gardener. But I feel like I need to grow, too. And I don't feel like there's a formula. And, you know, if, if, you, if, if you approach a piece and saying, okay, this is the safe way to go, this is the formula, this is what they expect to be done as uh, choreographically, um, without kind of like investigating some other possibilities, uh, for me, it's not interesting. I always put myself on the limb, I always want to learn, I always want to figure out a different way of approaching stuff, um, to make it exciting for me. I mean, it's a passion that I like, so um, if I'm not up on something, I'll, I'll do it. So to get back to your your question, um, every time I've done one of the shows and recreated the shows, I've done Aida, this is our third production. We have mm-hmm. a road company, th- the New York company, and the Amsterdam company. I, I've changed things constantly. And I'm, I'm always fixing and trying to make it clear. I mean, I don't think Aida was an easy piece. No. You know? Um, it's, a, it's a big success. The audience loves it. But mm-hmm. w- we were not accepted very well. Mm-hmm. But it didn't seem to matter. I mean, the audience– Here is a good example their of– The audience really loves it. And there's something really moving and beautiful about the piece. God only knows what the reviewers saw that they, that bugged them, but obviously, um, it really bugged them. But again, it, it, di- it didn't matter. I mean, it, it is a beautiful piece. I mean, I think it has a lot of baggage. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, is, there's the opera that is well-known. You there's don't have a
0: big, heavy soprano there. Right.
4: There's Elton John, which comes in a yeah. mix, which, it, with, which throws everything up in the air. I mean, it's a contemporary musical. Um, it's a beautifully visual music musical. Bob Crawley did a beautiful job. I'm part of, th- part of that tapestry. Um, it was interesting and very difficult to, to tell that story about that love triangle and have an ensemble of an amazing, uh, amazing dancers come alive and push that story <coughs> along.
0: Did you have to put the opera out of your mind, parenthetically?
4: Um, or
0: not? Or were you – didn't you care? I never thought about it once.
4: I mean, I knew we – we didn't have elephants, so, you know, we didn't <laughs> – <laughs> you know, so I had to create my own elephant, you know? <laughs> <and> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> obviously, I have. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a process, and it's, you know, it's a
5: learning process that you just got to keep learning.
0: Rob, do you have? Well,
5: uh, I was just thinking. Trying to, you said how many you've done the show three times now, and you know we um, we were fortunate enough to get to do a production of Thoroughly Modern Millie in La Jolla last fall, and uh, after after that experience, I'm a firm believer in that. Even more advantageous than a workshop is to actually do a production in front of people, Mm -hmm. like people that come in, normal people that come in. Because you learn so much about the show.
4: I don't believe in workshops, I mean, but that's my own opinion. I mean, a workshop a long time ago, when Michael Bennett created that, Mm -hmm. when we did Chorus Line, it was really about the actors and the director, and being in a room and being very creative, without showing anyone. And we did two workshops. Workshops became this other thing, where it's not about trying out the material, it's about Doing the material and waiting to be criticized yeah. about what's wrong with the material, how can we make the material
5: better? I don't think it's a very
4: <coughs> beneficial
5: well, process. Well, also in a workshop, you fabricate these great little inventions to get the show on in the workshop. Right. That it has so many to people It has nothing to do with the show, but it's, it's your ingenuity to t- to make it move. Right. You manipulate it. And then people right. fall in love with that. Right. Like, oh, that was so cool, the way that everybody moved everything themselves. And right. then people get married to that, and then you go, okay, I don't – do we have to do that in the show now, or right. are they are they not going to like it if we – you know, so it, it's very tricky. But when you do a real production, in front of an audience, then you can really learn about the show.
3: Well, right. in the case of the music, musical, the set is it, another character, too. It, it ha- mm-hmm. it is. So not to have that, yeah. you know, whereas doing a play is also – probably yeah, can accomplish yeah, something that easy, you can't. Yeah,
0: right. Well, I think right. sets are also in, in certain places, isn't it? it, it the set in, in a Dance of
1: Death is… It's a pretty big character, yes. Well, it's it a big is character, it. sure. It yeah, is, yeah, so it I absolutely. But I mean, I, we actually, at her in England, I workshop everything, but it's behind closed doors. At the National Theatre Studio, we have the privilege of being able to go in and, if I were going to do a play with Michael, for instance, the, <coughs> the process he described. Michael Blakemore doing picking on every single line, I would do that want to do that with Michael and a group of say six actors. Right, but
4: that's for you. And that's purely well, right, in right, private. And I might do mm. one, two, mm. maybe
1: even if I was lucky, three of those over a period of nine, ten months, that's a year great, yeah. before I did the production. Yeah. But I mean you, one used to go on the road with things or try things out in a theatre before time because you do learn more from the audience than from anybody at right. that point. Right. You can only get a p- show to a certain level. Then the audience comes in and they tells you all the things that you mm. know that you haven't. Because done. this
7: is absolutely the essence of theatre. It's not uh, somebody doing something, sitting up here doing something. It's a conversation with, with the audience, and the audience right. is an absolutely essential and vital part. And until you know um, how they regard their end of the conversation, you don't know anything about the show sure, at all.
5: But it feels like there's a lack of product somewhere that everyone is so anxious that if we go do a little workshop somewhere and we let a hundred people come in to see, that everyone is so anxious to see it, to critique it, to decide if it's the next hit, mm-hmm. to get on the internet. to, right. t- to I mean, it seems uh, – it's like it, it's a fervor, almost. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't allow you any – you know, you keep trying to go further away from New York but to try to workshop. Uh, you know, it's like, can mm-hmm. I just have a little space to try to make some mistakes? Mm-hmm. And well, it seems like
2: – workshops today. Are mostly for raising money.
5: Right, I think. To have so
2: the too. producers mm-hmm. here and to see what kind of show we can get out and what kind of money we can get for
4: That's it. That's
7: right.
2: I think this is more an American concept than an English one. Do you have workshops
7: there? Um, well, the, as Sean says, uh, people do workshop things. And I think with musicals, uh, people do sort of um, do tryouts of various sorts, don't they? They put on scenes. I've never been involved in doing a musical. I think so not I quite
1: know. to the extent that you have here, but I think they do do sort of backers workshops, yeah. yes. But as you say, it's, for, it's fundraising, yeah. But
5: don't you think it would help if the producers were maybe a little – in general, were a little more creative and a little more trusting and needed to see, to see less right there in front of them? Like, how's it going to look with eight girls instead of four girls? <laughs> how's it going to look if they're in three-inch heels instead? Of, I mean, they, everyone wants every. No one wants to take any any yes, uh, creative cha- yes. chances. You they can just, can they want to hot. see it right in front of them yeah. because that's what their investors yeah. want to see, or they yeah. they think they want to see. Well, we oh, thank Hollywood for
1: a lot of that. I'm afraid because that's you know it's all got to be absolutely on the drawing board before anybody will give a penny to anything, and that's taken that the, the theatres become much more like that. It, it is frightening.
3: But also, what you're saying is that in order to sell it, then you're actually creating something that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the thing that you want to do. That's right. right. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. I think we really have to think about this.
7: Well, there's a great Mm -hmm. difference between uh, really good producers Mm -hmm. and. And in different producers. And different producers are trying to guess what other people's taste is going to be. They're sitting there thinking, will people like this? Will people like this? Will the critics like it? Will the public come in? A good producer is sitting there thinking, do I like this or do I not? Mm -hmm. And if he's a really good producer, his taste (coughs) happens to fit in with the taste of the public often enough Mm -hmm. to make the thing work. Um, But if you haven't got that personal response to the show, and if your taste isn't sufficiently in line with public taste which mostly to come off, you sh- really shouldn't be a producer. Right. <laughs> we have very
2: <laughs> few of those producers around, you know? there do you There are. We
5: do. I have to I say, w- having the opportunity to <coughs> work with Garth Drabinski on a couple of shows, he was, he is, was, is that kind of producer. And there's something about that l- leader, that true leader, not leading from a checkbook or leading with Fear. some suit behind him, like, going, well, I wish the girls were prettier. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, Garth, Garth had his, <coughs> own <coughs> right. his own vision right. mm-hmm. and, um, and, and was very true to that, and, and, and that helps the show a great deal. Know. Whether the show's a success or not, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a, it's a clean, clear vision, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a, a showman like that behind you.
0: N- well, you know, we talked about about Hollywood. And uh, and film now, uh, Sean. You did Bent. Mm-hmm. Now, did you do it in the theatre first, or did you go right to the film?
1: No, I did it in theatre. I did it at the. I did the first sort of major revival of it at the National Theatre, which was about. Uh, I did it in I think 1990. It was about ten or so years after its first production. Um, and then when I was asked to make a movie of it, I said yes for for reasons of affection for the piece and passion for the piece. But I didn't think in a million years it would ever get made into a movie. And it only g- had the good luck of uh, being made into a movie, because at that time, a gentleman called David Orkin ran film four. And he had worked in – had spent all his life in the theatre, and he took tremendous risks on people who'd worked in theatre and, you know, brought them to film. And so, it got all the funding it needed. Um, and
0: so, you, you ended up directing both sides of that?
1: Abs- well, I directed it in the theatre and the then I directed it on film, yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, again, there, you don't have the advantage of knowing – having the, the conversation with an audience. So <coughs> How, how was your approach? Uh, oh, well, this is about the theater, not film. So can
2: you hold that for the next session? It's sure. time for <laughs> you to tell everybody to take a break at this point? Take a break. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, tell them why. Well, uh, we are going to then go uh, continue a bit and then have some questions from all of you, if we may. So, uh, I thank you. Very much. This is CUNY-TV, the City University of New York.
2: Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on Playwright, Director, and Choreographer. Before returning to our panelists, I would like to remind you that these seminars and the Wing's Tony Awards given for Excellence in the Theatre are just a part of the Wing's year-round programs. As a long-established charity, the Wing's mission is to promote excellence in the theater and to provide educational and humanitarian services through the theater. Our meaningful and important programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its 10-year history has enabled close to 100,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to the theater and the magic it unfolds by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our Theater in School program. Our hospital program, dating back to World War II, when we also created legendary stage Door Canteens, continues to provide volunteer professionals to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, and centers, and child care facilities. Additionally, our grants and scholarship program provides substantial financial support to bring forth new talent and productions. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members, and everyone whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. And so, now let's return to our panel on playwrights, directors, and choreographers, and our moderator George White. Thank you. George. That.
0: As When we last left this dynamic uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, conversation, Sean, we were talking a little bit about moving a, uh, uh, a theatre piece to, uh, to film, which uh, you did, which is rare, too, because very seldom will you have a, uh, you know, a theatre director move it. And had you done film before? I had written for film, but I hadn't
1: uh, directed, no
0: and what what did you, what was the process that you went through uh, to to translate something
1: well I think the, the, the m- one of the most difficult aspects of it is what we were talking about before in in regard to how you set up a production in the theater now is that when in getting the, the the money the raising the finance for the film you have to lay on the table absolutely everything you 're going to do you have to sort of really lay it out there and so you, just having a concept isn't enough you 've got to describing great detail what you're going to do with it before you'll get the backing to do it. And I think that's happening more in the theatre, which is worrying, because um, as far as I'm concerned, the creative process is, is a mystery that can't necessarily be laid out. And often, if you make decisions too soon, they can turn out to be the wrong decisions. You, you make the, the better decisions with the more information you have. And and the greater the collaboration has grown. So that was, al- that was pretty alarming, to have to do that. And I only had to do it to a, to a, to a lesser degree, because the, the budget was not too huge. The bigger the budget, the, the, the greater the, the degree, I would have had to have gone into infinitesimal detail of what I was going to do with it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's an entirely different process, film and theatre. There's absolutely no comparison. and. Um, All I can really say is that I I enjoyed it hugely, but it was, it was, um, I was a bit like a schoolboy. I mean, it was just, Mm -hmm. every day Mm -hmm. was learning.
0: right. And you could survive that as a theatre director. You had to learn and pretend that you knew what you were doing, I assume? I
1: never pretended I knew, which is uh, not something that I ever do. I'm always the first to stick up my hand and say, I don't understand, and I mean, I do it now all the time, because I'm not a good bullshitter, so.
0: Mm uh, Michael, a uh, uh, couple of things. First of all, uh, we uh, Greg talked about his uh, political science background, mm-hmm. which, of course, in these days is very good for theatre. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, what is your background? Uh, well I, do, w-
7: I don't want to upstage him. My background is in moral sciences. <laughs> well, that figures. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could I could take a poll here as to what moral sciences was, and I could guarantee that no one except possibly Sean Mathias would have the faintest idea what moral sciences were. Um, it was what they called philosophy at Cambridge when I studied philosophy. No one knew what moral sciences were and it sounded very impressive. You said, well, I'm a moral scientist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, stupidly, they've renamed the department, the philosophy department, everyone's got a philosophy department, no one thinks <laughs> philosophy is anything
0: special.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's a very silly move.
2: <laughs> but, but
7: your Cambridge education,
0: mm-hmm. uh, did that inform something like Copenhagen, Ko- or did it inform more noises off, or both, or again, we're back to your mental furniture, I'm sorry about that. Well, yes. Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> <laughs> well, everything, I think. Um, I think there's probably a bit of uh, philosophy in the background, or a bit of moral sciences, in the background of all the plays I've written. I try to keep this as quiet as possible, because (laughs) who wants to come and see a play about philosophy? Um, Hmm. But this just sparks off so many ideas. If you're interested in philosophy, you get interested in uh, uh, perception, um, how people know what they know, um, how people see each other, how they relate to each other. It's all part of philosophy, and that's, of course, also part of plays and novels as well.
0: And of course, mm-hmm. Noises Off is as much about that as is yeah. Copenhagen, yeah, right, it's true. true. But you've also – this is something that we have not had a lot on these uh, seminars, and, and it, it relates both to, to you and to Sean a little bit. Um, I know you've both been involved, uh, although you have actually translated uh, things from Russian and other languages, or just Russian, primarily?
7: Um, I've done things a little from the French. The only two languages I can really translate from French and Russian, because I wouldn't translate from any language I couldn't read fluently. But I've mostly done Russian, mostly Chekhov, in fact. And what is that process? You,
0: as a playwright, and I want to also get into the the business of Strindberg and how you go. Do you go
7: literal translation, or do you make the leap into what you think works theatrically?
0: Um, Um, I only
7: translate from languages I can read, so I marinate myself in the original and then try and and write a version in English. It's a thankless task, I have to tell you, with, um, with Chekhov, because everyone in the country can translate Chekhov better than you can.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Everyone knows more about what Chekhov had in mind, <laughs> even though they can't actually read the Russian original, than you do. And I'm always struck by the chutzpah of <laughs> <laughs> critics.
2: Translate that. <laughs> <laughs>
7: the sheer outrageous cheek <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, of critics who wouldn't dream of uh, rais- raising some basic question about an original play. But you have the faintest hesitation in telling you you've translated a line of Chekhov wrong when they can't actually read the original themselves. I've just been told uh, we've, Vanya, my translation of Uncle Vanya is running in England at the moment. One critic said uh, that I had not used the usual ending. Um, and then produce what she regarded as the usual ending. Well, <laughs> I don't know what the usual ending is, I can just tell you that the ending I've got on is the ending that Chekhov put on. Put on. <laughs> <laughs> but that wouldn't impress her, because she knows more about Chekhov than I do. What did you
3: translated from the French?
7: Um, I did a play by Annui, the, his last play, which he called Le Nombril, I called it number one. It's not, I'm afraid, a terribly good play. And I did um, something that I found very difficult and very enjoyable, um, which was an, a version, adaptation of La Belle Élaine, the operetta mm-hmm. by Offenbach. And I was asked to do this by English National Opera, and um, they, who always play in English, so they translate everything. And I thought the music was just wonderful. Offenbach's music was terrific. I thought the um, the uh, lyrics were wonderful in French, but they were going to be translated anyway, and over half of it is book scenes. That's right, I think is that the right term? Book <laughs> scenes? Yeah, okay. Um, and they were appalling, they were absolutely <laughs> frightful. And they usually just try to cut them to the minimum. You have to have quite a lot of them in to get the plot comprehensible. So I said I would not do it if I had to do a straight translation, but if they would let me write a new opera or operetta, um, which used this music, I would, I would do it. So I had tremendous, it turned out to be much, much harder work (laughs) than I ever imagined. How you write lyrics uh, regularly, I cannot sing, it almost killed me. (coughs) Um, But it was wonderfully exhilarating, particularly when we got into the rehearsal room. And uh, they told me that opera singers don't sing out in the rehearsal room, they just mark to save their voices. But in fact, because Offenbach is not very demanding music um, by opera singer standards, uh, they all sang out all the time. And it was enchanting. I used to go in every day and just listen to music from <laughs> first thing in the morning <laughs> to last thing at night. But I'm afraid it wasn't liked by the opera critics who thought it was uh, outrageous, uh, chutzpah my part, mm-hmm. to mess around with this uh, hallowed story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never been asked to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, mo- it's mostly been <clears> throat> throat>
0: right. you've, never, you've never translated fado, have you, In a farce?
7: Mm-hmm. Um, no, I never have. When I first wrote um, Noises Off, I did it as a short play, and the, the uh, farce that they were performing in that was a uh, pastiche Phaedo, I'd written, <laughs> because Phaedo is, is so delicious, to pastiche. I mean, it's just such fun writing a Phaedo farce. But in the end, I decided that was uh, sadly not what this tatty company in England would be performing. They'd be performing a tatty um, English sex farce, so I had to start all over again. <laughs> Well, now, uh, uh, Sean, to get back to uh, the
0: process of Strindberg, which is uh, also – I'm sure the critics uh, know a great deal more about uh, Strindberg as they do about uh, Chekhov uh, than you probably did. But but, uh, tell us how you… Did you go back and start over?
1: I'm not sure Strindberg is the same sort of sacred cow, as it were, because um, they, they haven't done what they – what Michael's described. Uh, they haven't done that to our translation here. They've just referred very you – know, I, I think Richard Greenberg's had good reviews, but they – and they've referred – they referred they have not gone into any great detail about, che- about Strindberg's play. It's been interesting. Whereas when you do a Chekhov, I think because everyone does check off it, it, you do feel it isn't, you know, it's commonly owned, and you're not allowed to do anything to change it. So, this was slightly different, and of course, this play, Dance of Death, isn't done very often. I mean, th- it was done uh, at Lincoln Center, I think, about twenty years mm-hmm. ago now. Well, it was.
3: Even longer. Maybe longer. longer?
1: It's been, there's been a few productions in England, but the most r- famous one was the Olivia one, and that, of course, is over 40 years ago now, so or about 40 years, so mm. it's, it's, n- it's not done that frequently. So you, you don't uh, feel that you're necessarily messing around with something that everyone else has a previous claim to, which, of course, I- it makes you feel more like you're doing a new play, which was mm-hmm. – so that, mm-hmm. that was quite liberating. I think what we, we felt we needed to do here was to make it extremely speakable so that it would seem, in some senses, more modern for an audience. I wanted to make it feel like it was a new play and and bring – without updating. we would do it in its period and its placing and everything. We haven't uh, messed around with any of that, but wanted to make you feel like you could be seeing a play that was written by somebody, you know, just yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we took certain liberties – we took liberties with the third character of Kurt, definitely. Uh, We we, – Greenberg sort of did do um, a fair bit of work on him, uh, note. We worked together on that. And right, in, what n- in what way? Um, he – I mean, Strindberg says that the captain is the best part he ever wrote, and I think if you've got a wonderful actor, and we indeed do have, I mean, I think it's very hard for that actor to fail in that part. Alice is an extremely good part, but she's quite – they're both monstrous characters, but somehow I don't I – don't, well, I, I sort of do know how, but it's too long to go into that, but somehow – his character is slightly more empathetic to the audience. Her character sort of endlessly seems to be savage and cruel and selfish. So I wanted to sort of turn that to some degree, to make her a a little more palatable. And partly the casting of Helen Mirren was to – I wanted to make her very feminine. I didn't want a shrew or a tough actress to play her. I wanted to get a very feminine, sensual actress to play her, and, th- and that was the road we took. And then with Kurt, he the, – the, the, the problem uh, f- in the, trans- the translations I'd read – I'd read several from the original – were that he's much more of a cipher for both of them, and less flesh and blood. And we b- – I think we worked very hard to make him flesh and blood as well.
0: Oh, good, good. Now, uh, to another – little bit uh, – m- and, and Michael alluded to this, but I want to toss this one uh, at Greg. Um, in Urintown, um which uh, is is special, uh, tell us about the process of writing lyrics. I mean, that's a tough <coughs> question, I know, but I mean, yeah. is <laughs> it?
6: Are you a poet? No, no, not at all. I, I, you know, I found the, uh, the process of, of writing lyrics, to me, was, was very much like doing a crossword puzzle, in that you had, you know, the way w- that we wrote it is, I wrote it out as a book, and we had a, a certain number of pages that had to be turned into a song. And so we knew uh, what the story had to tell. We knew what the song, the story that the song had to tell, um, and who needed to be speaking, and what the structure of, of the scene was going to be. And then it was just a process of taking these lines of dialogue or this monologue and musicalizing it. Um, and uh, typically. So the, the lyrics came before the music in your time? Uh, it depended on the song. Um, uh, it, but we attacked it from. From whatever angle we needed to do, sometimes Mark would come in with a Mark Holman, the composer, would come in with a melody, and uh, we would search in the uh, scene for a um, what he called a a musical hook. Um, There's a scene between the two lovers, um, and they sing this song called "Follow Your Heart," Um, and that was, uh, you know, this is the classic romance scene where the lovers find each other, Um, and this was a line that Hope. The, the ingenue kept repeating, and Mark identified that says, okay, this is, this is what th- we're going to call the song. It's going to be all about this, follow your heart. Um, and then from there, you you, um, you just – you have a very good – you have the best rhyming dictionary you can find. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have a thesaurus, and you have a dictionary, and you just sort of like y- – mm-hmm. you kind of – you write out a line, and, and then you just – it's like doing a crossword puzzle. It's, it can be really tedious, but it can be really mm-hmm. thrilling when you sort of find the right stuff. Um, It can be very mechanical, and it can be very sort of – you can write a song in two minutes. um, And probably the best ones are the ones that happen really quickly, so.
2: Does a playwright write for a specific audience, for example, Broadway or off-Broadway when you sit down? Are you thinking of what kind of audience this play would address itself to? Uh,
6: I I don't know. I guess I I think if you had an idea of who your audience was going to be, I think you'd probably be lost. I think you have to – my measure was, if Mark laughed, then it was in.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and if he didn't
6: laugh, then forget about it. So I guess I wrote, I wrote for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I,
2: I, <coughs> <coughs> I think we're ready to go to questions now, uh-huh. Would you please ask the first question?
0: Hi. Uh, for Lynn Meadow. What particular problems arise when you direct a show that moves from Off-Broadway to to Broadway? Uh,
3: What are the problems that arise? Um, Well, usually we're just thrilled that that (laughs) is (laughs) happening. That's the problem. (laughs) That is the problem. Um, No, I think uh, the important thing is, kind of, I I always come back to the mission and what it is that that I'm trying to do, and um, as artistic director of a theatre, um, I have to remember that uh, a show m- from moving from the Manhattan Theater Club to Broadway is a byproduct of what we're doing. It's not the goal of what we're doing. So, m- what I'm really interested in, and what I've spent my life doing, is working with artists as, as a director, as an artistic director, and uh, and that's my that really is my goal. So, I think the problem comes sometimes when. Uh, if if there's a perception from the outside that that's really what this theater is about, and uh, that really gives a wrong message to the people who are attending, and it gives a wrong message to the artists who are working there, so I think it's you know it's like that thing of directing a show. You have to keep kind of saying what is it that we're doing, and keep reminding everybody what the main goal is of a particular play or a particular scene. And I feel like it's part of my job, to keep reminding everybody what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, so the problem, I think, can be one of perception. But uh, in the case of The Tale of the Allergy's Wife and Proof, moving to Broadway recently for Manhattan Theatre Club, we, we were thrilled. Um, we did the – we supported um, artists, and uh, we did the shows for reasons of believing, as, as we talked about. I, these were pieces that I, I thought were wonderful, and I wanted to do them. So um, there, there's a lot that was really fabulous. I can't fetch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Parenthetically, there is absolutely no relationship
7: no between Proof and Copenhagen.
3: None. <laughs> <laughs> they both have one-word titles. And <laughs> ah, <then> there is
7: <laughs> I think people like to find categories and uh, there happened to be various plays which touched on science or mathematics. Yeah. At the time Copenhagen touches on physics. Uh, proof touches on mathematics, and that seemed like a convenient handle. And they're to both to about to moral science. <laughs> 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 Isabel, I'm sorry. Back Go you. on. No, it's back to you.
4: Okay. Hi, my name is Hallie, and my question is for anyone who'd care to tackle it. I was wondering if the current extensive technology that's available in the theatre is an asset
2: or a detriment, and why?
1: Um, mm-hmm.
4: I think it could help. I think I, I think it could get overdone uh, and get very technical, where you where you lose track of what the what the play or the musical is about, where you start looking at technology. Um, but I, I I think what's out there I- is pretty amazing. It's it's just if it's overproduced or not overproduced. It you know it's really a taste thing. I mean I don't know how. You I, guys I do
5: think it. that one thing that happens when you're when you're trying to Let's say set design, because that, that tends to use some of those things more. One thing that you try to do is the set designer will tell you, uh, yeah, we can do anything. It's all according to budget. A, a lot of it. Right. So I know that in meetings, f- for example, uh, uh, meetings on a, on a new show, you say, I would love it if this elevator could come out of the center of the turntable. Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's ex- it's expensive. <laughs> so, so it's great that your mind can go anywhere, but also you eventually have to get down to the budgetary point. So then somehow you feel like a kid who's had something taken away when, when you're you know, you told, yeah, sure, it can, everyone can fly, the entire cast can <laughs> fly, because it's possible now, but it's not practical. You but know? also, the,
6: the, the, heart of, the heart of theatre, the, the thing that makes it different from film, um, is that there's pe- live people on stage and people in the audience who can see each other. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, the, a, 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 a problem or a, a, an effect that can be created very simply, you know, with a pot mm-hmm. um, uh, as opposed to, you know, a huge lighting system, sometimes just seems so much more satisfying because it's all about what you do with that medium as opposed to what you do in spite of the medium. Right. Mm -hmm.
4: So And the boundaries could be more effective sometimes when you're, like, confined to something. You have to make that come alive instead of such a broad scope of what it is. And then it's like, it's beyond your imagination and then it kind of takes over.
3: I also think that post-September 11th, there is a recognition that we all feel of what being in a theatre means, mm. and, and what you're talking about, and, and the power of being with a live audience, uh-huh. and, the, and the sense of community that people are feeling, and that sense of kind of well-being, and, and the simplicity of that. that that uh, w- we're reminded of it in a way that's much more vivid than we were aware of before. And it's ma- maybe that makes us uh, understand that it's not about technology. It's, mm-hmm. it's really about right. the communal mm-hmm. event that takes place mm-hmm. a- and how grateful we are to be able to do
0: it. Right. True. Absolutely. Sir? Sure. Okay. Uh, my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Sean Mathias. Do you think that British actors are usually better at doing classic plays? And if so, why?
1: Go <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, <it>. lightly. <laughs> oh, lightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think <laughs> that Americans are better at wearing musicals. Get your, no, no, man your glasses. No, I don't, because I, well, I've, this is my fourth show in New York, and I absolutely love working here, and if I thought the British actors were better at doing classic plays, I wouldn't come and work here, to be honest. I mean, I love working with Americans, and I love working in New York. Um, I think that in Britain, there's it's disbanding somewhat. There's been a huge repertory system where young actors have gone out and learned their craft, and so actors have have gone into a system whereby, uh, you know, a system that exists all year round with a certain amount of funding, whereby they will be in as many as six, maybe even more plays within one year. They might stay in that company for a year or two. And so actors t- before now learned their craft there doing the classics and contemporary plays and learnt their their stage uh, technique, and then they could possibly go off and get to the RSC or the Royal National Theatre if they were lucky enough. That has changed somewhat, and most young actors in Britain don't give two hoots about that now because they have fabulous film careers or te- careers in TV, which are very lucrative. So. Uh, yes, we have an amazing tradition of, of, of uh, trained actors who are, were wonderful for serving classical theatre. That has broken down to some degree, and it's sad that it's broken down. Um, but it's great that we've got actors that we can put on film. We never had that before. You had the monopoly on that, apart from the rare people like – somebody like Laurence Olivier, were th- or Michael Caine, somebody who came along. There were very few British movie stars. <laughs> now there are a lot of British actors, young British actors without being big stars, have movie careers as well. So, I mean, I just think that the, the theatre has changed a lot, and um, I think go. also
7: there's been a, a shift in attitude towards the classics in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to New York about, what, 15 years ago with uh, Ian McKellen to do an adaptation I've made from a Chekhov play, for free called Wild Honey, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, had worked well in London didn't succeed here. Uh, but the producers said, can we get Chekhov's name off the billing? <laughs> As I said, oh, it's really. poison in oh, New oh, York. Oh, and fine. I think I think that's now <laughs> <laughs> that's now changed. I think <laughs> you can do check off in New York and uh <laughs> mm. for those uh, producers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's
3: one.
0: <laughs> <coughs> yes, this question is for Michael <laughs> Frain and Greg Kotis. How valuable do you think um writing classes are <laughs>
6: uh I, 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 don't, I, I haven't taken many writing classes, <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> um, the advice that I was given by Bernie Sollins, who was uh, the producer of S- Second City for many years, he said that the only play- way you're going to learn is to put your stuff in front of an audience. That's That was his contention. And I followed that advice, which was really bad advice for a long time, but now it turns out it's good advice. So I I think <laughs> – <laughs> I think the thing is y- what what people have been saying is true. You have to put your stuff in front of people and see how they respond because it's about it's about clarity, it's about telling stories. It's it's and, and you don't you won't have that answer. The the show isn't done until an audience sees it. And everything you do before that is preparation, but the preparation can't be the, the audience is your teacher. Is is the most important teacher. I think Michael.
7: Well, I've never taken a a writer's class, um, never been near one, so I I wouldn't know. Uh, It sounds a bit implausible to me. Though when you're up against it, um, as I am at the moment, struggling with a new play, I realize I don't know anything about playwriting whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was doing an interview um, in New York yesterday with someone who explained one of the basic principles of playwriting to me. And I was so grateful. When he said that at the end of Act One, you have to have set up a big conflict between two characters. That's what a good idea, I do <laughs> 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 shouldn't listen now. <laughs> so then I began to think maybe I've missed something. Maybe I've been a bit of a fool not to go to. Actually, when you were writing a play, you'd do anything. You'd go to a writer's class. you… Uh, <laughs> to get away from it. <laughs> get, 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 uh, correspondence lessons. <laughs> to, to get the thing done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want to let us in on the, the new play you're struggling with? <laughs> it's too early to struggle even to know. It, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I, I see. I tell you. No. Oh, well, all right.
2: I'm all right. sorry to interrupt, that once more, there is not enough time to continue to get all the information and all the knowledge that's available on this panel. I'm so sorry that we have to stop it, but it has been one of the real problems of my life that we can go on and on and on (laughs) with the wonderful people that come to be part of the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. And this has been coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I want to thank this wonderful panel who have shared their knowledge, their experience, and their time with us. And my gratitude also goes to George White for his wonderful leadership in bringing forth the knowledge that has come forth from this committee, from this council. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. And this is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The seminars are just one of the many programs of the American Theatre Wing. I thank you all for being here. I thank you for an audience that is so appreciative and so willing to be part of the American Theatre Wing's audience. Thank you so much.